Hello, friends. Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers and all other lovers of the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week, we're going to be taking a dive into Jeremiah 32, the lectionary text scheduled for September 29th, 2019. Now, we're taking a break from our pony-sized mini-episodes to bring you a giant Clydesdale of an episode with the diminutive yet powerful special guest exegete, Dr. Carol Newsom. Dr. Newsom just recently retired as the Charles Howard Candler Professor of Old Testament at Candler and a senior fellow at Emory's Center for the Study of Law and Religion. Dr. Newsom came to Candler in 1980, and she was only the second woman to hold a tenure-track position. And Dr. Newsom's research interests are vast. The Dead Sea Scrolls, mm-hmm. Wisdom Tradition, the Book of Daniel, Apocalyptic Literature, Weaving, and Looms. She has written and edited 13 books, scores of articles, book chapters, translations, encyclopedia articles, reviews. She's co-edited the acclaimed Women's Bible Commentary, which explores the implications of and challenges long-held assumptions about the Bible's portrayal of women and other marginalized groups. If you're interested in more of her work, we would recommend that uh, Women's Bible Commentary or her commentary on Job in the New Interpreter's Bible, and we'll put a link to those on our website. She is a dear and beloved professor of Tim and I, and we are thrilled to have her on the podcast. Dr. Carol Newsom, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, we're so glad to have you. And I just second the recommendation of the Women's Bible Commentary. That's on my shelf, and I use it all the time. It's uh, out in its third edition not too uh, not too long ago. So it's it's got some staying power, that one. Yeah, yeah. Now, Rachel mentioned, Carol, your uh, varied research interests. And so I just wanted to open mm-hmm. by asking you about one of them. Um, what would you say is your current favorite uh, crafting project? <laughs> I have been doing all things fiber, and I recently took up learning how to spin yarn from um, from fiber. And uh, I just think that that's one of the most pleasurable activities. It's actually a form of meditation. Oh. And so I think that uh, spinning is, uh, there's something probably metaphorical in the way in which you take something that is formless. And when you have finished spinning it, you have something that hangs together, but is full of infinite possibility. Oh, wow. There's, there's your sermon right there, folks. I mean, I think we yeah, should we just, can just stop right yeah, now. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> that's wonderful um how have we've been curious too i mean you've been in the field since 1980 and a lot has happened in the field of biblical studies since that time so just very broadly how has the field changed since you started in it Oh, gee. Uh, When I was doing my graduate studies back in the mid to late 1970s, the field was um, very traditional, and the kinds of questions that you could ask were within a limited range of things, uh, mostly historical critical questions, and people were very much interested, how do we get to the origin of things? That was the the question of the day. Mm -hmm. And obviously, um, about that time, things were beginning to change. Um, I kept challenging my professors to let me do things that were more on the literary side. And basically, I was told, 
uh, we don't do that here. <laughs> <laughs> and so, okay, fine. You'll teach me what you can. And then when I get out and I have my own job, I'm going to do what I want to yeah. do. Uh, but the other thing that I think has changed so much is that, like I say, we used to think, well, how do we get to the origin of something? And whatever happened on the receiving end, the reception history, nobody paid any attention to. That was, again, something that our field didn't do. And now reception history, what's the life of a biblical text as it goes out into the world and gets reinterpreted, that's one of the most lively parts of our field that there has been. And I think in part that's related to the fact that we've got people in the field now who come from all kinds of different backgrounds, who represent different um we have different genders, different ethnicities, different sexual orientations, and uh, much more international, globalized. Mm-hmm. And so you get that many different people coming together, and the questions are just going to be really different. So it's been a wonderful, exciting time to be in biblical studies. Fantastic. Absolutely. Well, then I think that's a happy note to uh, continue our conversation on. So let's uh, let's dive into the text. Um, Carol, would you mind reading that the text for us? Sure. I'm going to use the uh, NRSV translation. Okay. Uh, and the, the passage, again, runs the chapter 32 of Jeremiah, verses 1 to 15. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of King Zedekiah of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and the prophet Jeremiah was confined in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, where King Zedekiah of Judah had confined him. Zedekiah had said, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, I'm going to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall take it. King Zedekiah of Judah shall not escape out of the hands of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he shall remain until I attend to him, says the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Hananel, son of your uncle Shalom, is going to come to you and say, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then my cousin Hanamel came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is in Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from my cousin Hanamel and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, son of Neriah, son of Maaseiah, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. In their presence I charged Baruch, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, 
and put them in an earthenware jar in order that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Thanks, Carol. One of the things that we do every week in our podcast is to try to uh, explain a little bit of the context for these texts in the lectionary that sort of come out of the blue. Now, this this one begins with a little bit of like personal context for what's happening with the prophet Jeremiah. But can we say something about the bigger picture historical context of uh, at least is being referenced by this text, or what's happening in sort of the geopolitical world here? Yes, um, for a long time before this text opens, um, Judah had been um, a, a vassal state under the Babylonian Empire. And um, none of the little vassal states liked being vassal states because <laughs> the empires siphoned off a lot of the resources and money requiring tribute every year. So it's economically terribly burdensome. Plus, it was humiliating not to have your own independence. So the little states were always on the lookout for, hmm, can I rebel? If I rebel, will I get away with it? Or are we going to get smacked by uh-huh. the Babylonians? And they would meet together, sometimes try to do a little coalition. They would try to coordinate with maybe somebody on the other side of the empire who wanted to rebel. So they were always strategizing and um, trying to decide if they could do this and get away with it. But it's a very high-risk strategy. And so in the background, there have been two or three of these little attempts, but they always kind of fizzled out or they made peace really quickly. But this time, the, the, the Judeans had gone into rebellion and the Babylonian army shows up. So it's serious business. <laughs> It reminds, it reminds me a little bit of, you know, my, my kids, we don't do nap time anymore, but we do quiet time. And, you know, you can hear their door open and you call up there, okay, guys, go back to your room. And, you know, they kind of keep doing whatever it is they're doing until you start stomping up those stairs. And then the doors close <laughs> <Yeah>. really fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so do we know, so this is the 18th year of Nebuchadrezzar. Do we have a sense at this point of how long um, this siege has been going on and how, how uh, drastic things are getting in Jerusalem? Yeah, King Zedekiah had stopped paying tribute in about um, 589. But, you know, there was not, there were no airplanes, there were no railroads, <laughs> and so an army... Uh, took it took a while before anything happened. So it's been two years or so, and then the Babylonian army shows up in um, probably sometime in early 587, around January, we think. And the siege is going to go on for 18 months. So the siege takes place between January 587 until Jerusalem falls in 586. And the events in Jeremiah 32 probably take place six to eight months after the siege has started. So it's been going on for a while, but um, it's, uh, it's, it's going to run for a good bit longer mm. after this. Mm. We're not in the home stretch yet then. 
No. Now I've mm-hmm. I've heard you you have an awesome lecture on what siege warfare was like <laughs> at that time period and what conditions in the city became yeah. like. Can you kind of summarize for us what did siege warfare entail and what was life like in the city under siege warfare? Yeah, I got fascinated in this and started to see what um, historians and archaeologists had discovered. And, you know, on the way, cities at this point had, you know, big stone walls, and um, they were very hard to attack and take directly. Uh, If you were lucky enough to have um, a water supply within the city, then you were even more secure. Nevertheless, when an army pulls up outside your gates, they can cut off all the surrounding countryside and try to starve you out or to wait until you've exhausted your water supplies. Because when your food's gone, your water's gone, you're not going to last very Mm -hmm. long. So it's this kind of, but the people inside are hoping how long can the can the Babylonians afford to keep their troops out there? Because they've got to supply them, and they might be needed to do something more urgent on the other side of the empire. So maybe we're going to luck out, and they're just going to up and leave. So it's this psychological uncertainty. Each side wants, thinks that it can outlast the other. Now, in the city... If you, if you knew you were going to get besieged, you know, your spies had come back and told you, first thing you do, of course, is you gather all of the, um, the food sources you can. But also, people out who are living outside, they want to come to the city because their little farms and villages, they're going to get um, massacred if mm-hmm. they're outside. So people are crowding in. They're bringing their cattle. They're bringing their sheep. Um, they bring whatever grain stores they've got. Now, these cities in antiquity, they're not big. Uh, <laughs> and um, if you bring that many people and that many cattle, etc., into the city, <laughs> it gets crowded. It gets smelly. It gets unhygienic. And who's going to eat the grain, the cattle or the people? So pretty soon, you start slaughtering the cattle. Mm-hmm. And so this creates this really bizarre um, party atmosphere in the city. Because in antiquity, people maybe ate meat a couple of times a year, big festive occasion. All of a sudden, we got to slaughter all these cattle. It's, you know, emotionally, it's like saying party time. <laughs> and so that the, the saying that you've heard from the Bible Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what they're talking about, is the weird psychological dynamics of those first few weeks or months in a siege when there's abundance to eat, there's abundance to drink, but it's all under the shadow of, because we don't know what's coming tomorrow. (laughs) So this is the way things begin in a siege, but then pretty soon... You've eaten up the cattle, and you've eaten up a lot of the grain, and there's a fascinating little passage in Ezekiel where God commands Ezekiel to take a little bit of lentils, take a little bit of rye, take a little bit of barley, you know, and mix all of this together and make bread, Mm -hmm. and he calls it bread of siege, and 
you know, this has nothing to do with that wonderful, wholesome Ezekiel bread that you find in the grocery store. (laughs) Instead, what they're saying is after the siege has gone on a little longer, you don't have enough of any one grain to make a loaf of bread. You are literally scraping the bottom of the barrel to try to get a little of this, a little of that, and make something to eat out of it. Mm -hmm. So this is what's happening several months into the siege. People are getting nervous, and they're also getting on each other's nerves. And part of the city says, you know, we really need to surrender and just see if we can negotiate our way out of this. And the other side is saying, you're crazy. They're going to kill us. Our only hope is to resist to the end Mm. and hope that we can be saved that way. So people start fighting with each other inside the city. It reminds me a little bit of when the power goes out and all of a sudden, well, it's time to eat whatever is in the fridge. Yes. <laughs> it's yes. not going to last. So eat, no. drink, and be merry. Yeah. That's right. But then if it goes on for two weeks, you got problems. Yeah. That's right. That's right. right. So Jeremiah finds himself sort of besieged within a siege. Yeah. He's, he's uh, under confinement himself and uh, has a prophetic perspective on the situation. So that's the first, you know, five verses or so of this yeah. chapter. What do we want to say about uh, his message in the midst of this this uh, situation? Yeah, Jeremiah is kind of what a lot of people would have called um, a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> because his, um, the word of God that he insisted he was commissioned to bring was surrender to the Babylonians. Mm. And... That does not go over well to all of those people who thought they had entered into this rebellion because um, they thought that they were intended to be a free and sovereign people, that they were to resist the imperial power of Babylon, that they were also in some sense thinking that was what it meant if Yahweh was sovereign, is that they should be sovereign. And here comes Jeremiah saying, Uh, No, actually, the word from God is surrender to the Babylonians. And in uh, one passage, a few chapters earlier, chapter 27, Jeremiah comes out and he says, no, the word that God that came to me was God had decided, for reasons known only to God, that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be the overlord. And your job is to submit. And if you go into rebellion, you're rebelling against God. Mm. That's a hard message to sell to the king. <laughs> yeah. Especially if you're six, eight months into the siege. And like you said, people are starting to get on each other's nerves in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At the same time, it has a lot of appeal to those people who are thinking, ah, our rash leaders stupidly got us into this mess mm. and they're going to get us all killed. So there were people who were very strongly in favor of what Jeremiah said and thought this is a hard pill to swallow, but it is what we're supposed to do. And those who thought he was simply being a traitor. Well, and, you know, the the uh, it, I find it so interesting that the RCL cuts that section out of this um, passage, because in, for some in some ways, it's essential to understanding it, because yeah. what comes further, and we'll talk about this later, but what comes further is a word of hope and restoration. But they yeah. cut out the, the whole part about, you know, being divided and being sent away. <laughs> and I thought, well, well, you know, what does it mean that 
vineyards are going to be planted and purchased when they're already being planted and purchased. You need this that part of the story to understand the rest of the text. Yeah, you do. And um, the if you if you just look at that those three verses, three or four verses in there, they're very awkward, and they really read like, oh, and before all of this happened, <laughs> let me tell you. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of background that's filling us in on the dynamics. And so I guess they leave it out because they notice that literarily it seems to interrupt the story. But I agree with you completely. If we don't know that background, we don't get the point of the story. That what Jeremiah, the, the word that Jeremiah gets from God in this passage only has its power in light of this previous message of surrender. Exactly. Now, where the where the RCL wants us to pick up is when the word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah and does this um, foretelling of something that's about <laughs> to happen. And um, when you when you ask people, you know, what does it mean to be a prophet or what is prophecy? You often hear that word, oh, foretelling. It's telling the future. Um, but can you can you flesh out for us a little bit how common is this sort of prophetic foretelling in the Bible itself? Oh, not at all. Yeah. No, it's it's very rare. And in this one, and of course, there's not that much of a time gap, apparently, yeah. between uh, the time in which the word of the Lord says, you know, this is going to happen. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, here comes his cousin who shows up and lo and behold, says this thing. And um, it, we have no idea why the story gets told exactly this way. But it may be that what we have here is an actual event from Jeremiah's experience that his cousin shows up and he says, you know, buy my field. And we'll talk about that in a minute, why this would be an odd thing to happen at this moment. <laughs> um, but it may be that what Jeremiah, then the way the, the text is asking us to see is that this is such a bizarre thing to happen. And so there's this presentiment that, look, something weird is about to happen to you. Something weird happens. And so Jeremiah is plumbing for, what's the significance in this? Mm-hmm. And the and, and it's that sense of, wow, there is something significant about this that's worth thinking about meditating on. And it has to do with how does this get connected with the theme of hope? Yeah, it's almost like if uh, if this hadn't been pre-told to Jeremiah, mm-hmm. when it happened, he might have just blown it off. Like, there's yes. more important <laughs> things to be worrying about right now. But because yeah. he had been told by the Lord beforehand, yeah. then he knows, oh, I should pay attention to this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, think about the situation. This is how weird this is. The guy comes up and he says, I'd like to sell you a piece of property. Okay, what do you think the market value of property is <laughs> when the Babylonians are in the neighborhood just about to lay waste to everything and um, take it for themselves, undoubtedly, and probably massacre large proportions <laughs> of the population? This is not a good real estate investment. <laughs> and that's what makes it so weird. Yeah, everybody's got a cousin like that, right? <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> and nobody in their right mind would buy that property, you know, and they're going to get into this debate. Well, wait a minute, you know, you're you're the family member who's obligated to do this. Uh, it's your responsibility. But I would say at that point, no, all bets are off. 
that pertains to normal times. These are not normal times. Mm-hmm. So the weirdness of this, I think, is that as just an ordinary real estate transaction, doesn't make sense. And therefore, Jeremiah looks at it as, in some sense, a sign or a symbol. So this this real estate transaction yeah. becomes the heart of this passage <laughs> yeah. in all of its odd detail. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how much into the weeds we want to go with these mm-hmm. little details, but I wonder if we can say anything about... Um, some of the the customs that are there that for a modern audience might just seem strange or hard to understand. Are there a few that we can pick out and explain a little bit about? Well, yeah. I mean, one thing that I think we do have to look at is that whole notion of uh, keeping property within the family. Um, And and that's the basis when uh, his cousin comes up and he says, uh, buy my field that is in Anathoth for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. And again, he says, um, yeah, uh, buy my field for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Um, In the ancient Israelite uh, society, uh, land was tied to families. Now, you could sell it to outsiders, but that was considered something you only did in extreme situations uh, because that was your patrimony. That was your heritage, your inheritance. Mm-hmm. And to sell it outside the family was really to begin to dissolve your family. Therefore, the next of kin had an obligation if you had to sell, then somebody in the family was supposed to buy it. And then eventually, if you were able, you could uh, purchase it back again. But it stayed in the family that way. And um, we remember the story of uh, Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And Naomi has this field to sell. And so Boaz and this other man whose name is not mentioned um, are debating in chapter 4, okay, which one of us is the one that has the right of redemption? And Boaz finally... um, pulls a fast one and says, and by the way, I'm going to marry, I'm going to marry Ruth. And the man who had the first option says, okay, fine. You, you take the total package. I don't want the, I don't want the wife. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so, uh, so, so it's against that background that Jeremiah is being approached to buy this land. Now you might say, wait a minute, the whole message that Jeremiah has been giving is that Babylon's going to take over everything. And so what does it mean to even to continue that notion of buying land? If there's, quote, not going to be a future, why do it? And mm-hmm. I think that starts to bring us toward the heart of this passage. Is there a future? Well, and, and Jeremiah, like when he, I think, I think one of the things about Jeremiah that's so interesting is when he goes for something, he goes all in, you know, that's oh, just yes. all over the whole text. And it's, it's no different here. He, he buys out the land, he weighs out the money, he writes the deed, seals it, has it witnessed. Of course, this is actually one of the most detailed, um, pieces of information we've got on how real estate transactions were carried out. But what strikes me about this is the normalcy of it. This is nothing is, there's no 
haste in this. There's no cutting corners. This is honoring every step in the process. You know, if you've ever bought a house, you know how many documents you have to sign. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's unending. <laughs> well, this, the, the, the formality, the ritual, it's all recorded here. And I think that's our first hint toward the, where the passage is going. Because we are just about to enter into a period when everything normal is just going to be destroyed. When life as usual, the king's presence, the temple's presence, the, our presence in the land, all of that is about to be lost. So this is that little moment which starts to talk about Jeremiah is doing things as though everything was normal. Mm -hmm. What does it mean then, that juxtaposition between now it's normal, soon it's not going to be. And then at the end, the one thing that's not normal in this passage, uh, after he's gone through all of this detail, and he has um, Baruch um, take this sealed deed and put it in an earthenware jar in order that it may last for a long time. That's not normal. Mm -hmm. That's not what you ordinarily do. And instead, that's a gesture toward the fact that no, things are not going to be normal for a long, long time. On the other side of it, though, why it's so important to protect that deed is that somewhere in the future, life, ordinary life, life of buying and selling, life of planting and harvesting, life of raising families, that is going to return again, but not for a long, long time. I love that idea of the the slowness of this passage. I hadn't really picked mm -hmm. up on it when I when I read it, but um, in part, I think because because it's so slow, you kind of like try start to speed up your reading. Like, okay, this yeah. is the boring part, <laughs> you know, like genealogies or something like that. Um, but when you really do sit with that for a bit, it's almost like a a, a movement of um, not quite sure what to call it, but like embodied resistance mm -hmm. or embodied hope where where Jeremiah is enacting hope in yes. himself by going mm -hmm. through the normal everyday things you're supposed to do he is actually like it's almost a sign act of hope that he does mm -hmm. it this way and um, that just could be a really interesting thing to run with as a preacher of the ways that we embody hope in our very, you know, bodies, um, mm -hmm. during times when, when we know hope is, um, hope is hard to come by. Yeah. So, no, I think that's exactly where I would, would go with this text. Mm -hmm. And even when things might get worse before they get better. Yes. Because that's, this that's, is exactly, that's important yeah. here. I mean, it, mm -hmm. you could read this. If we didn't have the first part of this text yeah. and only had the the uh, real estate transaction, yeah. we might think that Jeremiah's point is that the disaster is not going to happen. Let's just keep going on with life as we've yeah. always known it. But it's that little hint in the, mm -hmm. the earthen jar yep. of uh, sort of time capsuling this deed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is his hint that, yeah, things are going to get really bad before they get better. Yeah. Uh, but exactly. the hope is there for the future, not for the immediate future, but for a ways, mm -hmm. a ways into mm -hmm. the future. Yeah, because, um, yeah, if it, 
as you're right, without that sense that, yes, he is still preaching doom. There is no doubt about that. Um, without that, it would be cheap hope. Yeah. Right. It would be facile hope. And it would be false hope. And so what he is doing is in the very face of real doom, real loss, he's talking about, but there is still hope on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's costly and precious and, um, just the, the kind of, of hope that's rebellious in the fact that it's hopeful even. Yeah. It's very radical. Yeah. It's very radical. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is admittedly a tangent, but when I read about putting these documents in an earthenware jar for to mm-hmm. hold on to for the future, Qumran immediately oh. comes to mind. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> there, these documents were stuck in these earthen yeah. jars for, what, almost 2,000 years before yeah. they were recovered and still legible. And, and uh, uh, so this, this was really a safety deposit. Yeah. It, it was. And, um, you know, we don't know why the Qumran community put some of their scrolls in jars. I mean, uh, in one of the caves, the one that was used mostly on a day-to-day basis, um, things were just apparently left on shelves. But uh, the scrolls that many of the scrolls that were put in the jars were very beautiful editions, very, very well-prepared scrolls. Mm. And we do know that their community got destroyed by the Romans in 68 um, CE. And it had, one of the suggestions has been that they knew that the Romans were coming and that they stored some of the most precious of the scrolls in the jars in almost exactly the same way of thinking that Jeremiah does that a horrible destruction was about to come upon them. But that was somehow not going to be the ultimate end. Mm. But those scrolls would have a future, which, ironically, they, they did. did. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that's so cool. <laughs> it almost makes you think maybe they were reading Jeremiah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it could be. Yeah, right. right. Okay. I, I am kind of curious about... Mm-hmm the place of writing in this text yeah Mm -hmm. because uh this is in a context which is you know historically mostly oral Mm -hmm. the fact that scribalism seems to have an important symbolic role in this text is there anything particular we could say about that yeah this this culture it it operates both with um with oral and with written texts and particularly um (laughs) once again real estate um, was one of the first areas where the written document became very important yeah, sure. mm. um, because uh, people needed to have records that could settle disputes. And um, so uh, the written documents that pertain to uh, what we would call contracts and real estate are some of the oldest uses for um, writing in the ancient world. And what's interesting here uh, is that as it describes it, it talks about, um, it, it suggests almost that there are, um, yeah, an, an open copy and a sealed copy. And so I was looking into this to see, you know, what exactly is the technology of this? And what they would do, they would take a long sheet of paper and they would write out the um, sales contract and they would, uh, you know, you have your um, uh, 
your your whole document there, and then you would fold it up, and the witnesses would usually write their names on the outside, and then um, a seal, which was um, melted wax, which was then imprinted with um, a seal that someone might have worn on a ring, so they would press their their signature mark into mm-hmm. the seal. That only was the first half of the sheet of of uh, papyrus or skin, whatever mm-hmm. they were writing on. Then they would write the contract or the deed out again on the bottom part and leave that loose oh. or just loosely fold it over it so you uh-huh. can get to it. So what you've got is, in one sense, a, a, a copy that can be easily accessed. So if we need to consult it, there it is. But the notarized copy, if you will, <laughs> the one that's sealed with the witness names on it, it's still there and preserved. Hmm. Now, in ancient Babylon, where they wrote on clay, they had an even cleverer way of doing this. They would write out the contract on the little clay tablet and get the witness uh, names on it. And then they would literally make a clay envelope. Oh. <laughs> and they would stick the little tablet into the clay envelope. And then on the front and back, they would write the contract out again. (laughs) So you could see it on the outside. But if you ever had to go to court and Uh prove that nothing had been tampered with, you would break it open, and there, there's the untampered with original. Oh, that's amazing. (laughs) So you can see how there have always been lawyers with us. That's awesome. That's fascinating. (laughs) You know, that's that's a really... uh, helpful uh transition into preaching pitfalls one of the things that we we do often in our podcast is try to give a heads up to preachers of places where sermons could go off the rails and uh, i could see myself doing about 20 minutes on (laughs) (laughs) the way that that uh deed scrolls were sealed but that might that might not be the most helpful thing for a sermon on this text even though it's very fascinating to uh, people with antiquarian interests like like we will save that one for the wednesday night bible that's exactly right (laughs) that's exactly right oh i i feel you tim sometimes if i'm doing pulpit supply i'll i'll read my my sermon out to my husband and uh at at a certain point and when i start going on that the, these historical tangents, he just says, bored. It's like, okay, well, oh. that's that's my note right there that I'm going into things that interest Rachel. So. <laughs> no, I was thinking, though, about this text, and, you know, you're right. That, that would be one way, as interesting as we find it, that might go off the rails. Um, similarly, the um, uh, I think one could also, tempting as it is, um, there are other passages if you wanted to talk about ancient empires and powers and that sort of thing. There are other texts that would fit better. I think it would be a bit of an imposition to try to incorporate, you know, critique of empire into this passage because that's not what this one lends itself to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead, as we were talking about earlier, I think this one is about that. How, how do you live? in the face of the certainty in which your whole world is about to fall apart. And it looks like it is about to fall apart so decisively. The one sort of obvious response to it would just be 
just nihilism, just giving up, just entering into despair. And it's really hard to see why that's not the end point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about thinking about, well, now what are some circumstances like that? And I was thinking, what about a family in which you know that a member of the family has a terminal disease and you have to live with that for a number of months before it even happens? Mm-hmm. And so everybody knows that life as we know it is just about to end decisively, and our family is about to be torn apart. And a passage like this doesn't say, oh no, oh no, a miracle is going to happen and nothing is going to go wrong with your life. But instead, it points us to that hard business of, no, you really are going to go through a lot of suffering and you are going to lose everything that feels normal. You are going to lose everything that feels like what holds it together. But this little ritual that we are doing this little putting aside of taking of something right now that is a normal activity. And we're going to put it in a safe place because somehow on the other side of this, a long time from now, but sometime on the other side of that, this family is also going to once again begin to laugh, uh, begin to do things that feel ordinary, uh, are going to, not without, not forgetting what has been lost, but in a sense of honoring it by saying, we now do again those things that we did when life was whole. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, that's a strong message from this passage. Absolutely. I think about that. I mean, it's easy sometimes for us to think about these in very personal terms. But I read this and my first thought was, oh, yeah, climate change. And we're facing the societal uh, deep concern that uh, our whole world, as we have known it, is perhaps threatened with destruction. And what does it mean to care for a piece of earth? Um even though we know that this land may undergo uh, unimaginable destruction, devastation, can we believe that God will be present with the earth on the other side of that catastrophe? And that's what I think is also important about Jeremiah, is that there was a real debate um, in the aftermath of the fall of Jerusalem about where's the future of the whole people? Mm-hmm. Maybe the future is just with the exiles. Maybe from here on out, we're just going to be a people in diaspora. And Jeremiah, from beginning to end, keeps insisting that, no, there is also going to be a future here in this place. Uh, this is God's mm-hmm. covenanted land. And there will also be a future here. And so that place, um, the the importance of place, I think, is also part of what he is saying. And that, um, no, Hanamel, you may want to just take your money and scoot off to Moab. But <laughs> some of our descendants are going to be here and are going to farm this field again in the future. Mm. 
Rachel, did you have an angle on this text that you wanted to bring yeah, up? Yeah, I, um, a, an angle similar to the one you were bringing up, Carol. Um, a couple sort of side tangent angles. First, uh, first is this idea of the uh, embodied nature of hope and the embodied ritual of hope. Um, if you're in a community that is facing tough times right now, I think of uh, you know rural areas that are underwater in Nebraska or that are facing um, really stiff crop prices and uh, not the prospects of a great harvest. You know, what does it mean to embody hope as you are facing that kind of disaster and you know it's coming? And um, much like a marauding army, uh, there's not a whole lot you can do about the weather. So um, how do you embody hope in that scenario? Um, I, I also found it really fascinating to think about if you're a pastor who is linked up with a prison ministry, um, what would it be like to go and do a Bible study on this passage with them to get their impressions of what it is like to, to have hope in prison? Um, what is their impression of God's use of a prisoner in this scenario? Granted, he's one that was probably put there unjustly, uh, but still, that that sort of concept is um, could lend itself to some really interesting sermon points. That's a really important um, perception, I think. It's one that we kind of passed over in talking about the passage. This takes place specifically, yes, with Jeremiah imprisoned. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, that's one of those details that it's easy just to pass over as background information, but I think you've shown how that could be a very important hermeneutical point of entry. Mm-hmm. Oh, whenever you say something like that, I'm back in my graduate course just thinking, oh, I said something smart. <laughs> Carol knew some. <laughs> <laughs> And then finally, I think um, to to really highlight this idea of hope, I had the idea of doing a progressive sermon using the refrain of houses, fields, and vineyards, and just almost coming at the text backwards through that refrain of really meditating on each of those. What does a house signify? It's, It's a home. It's a life. It's a family. It's rootedness. What do fields signify? Work income, stability, community, and vineyards, what do they signify? Growth, abundance, flourishing, all of these things that were dissolving around mm-hmm. Jeremiah. Um, and so if you, if you run with that refrain and keep repeating it throughout mm-hmm. this section, that houses, fields, and vineyards mm-hmm. shall again be purchased into this land, um, you can transition that to, uh, to the climate change, as you talked about, Carol, you can transition that to our lives. Um, what does it mean for God to promise that rootedness, stability, and flourishing will return um, even in the face of sure disaster? Um, so that's how I was coming at it. How about you, Tim? Yeah, I was thinking about this in quite similar terms as the two of you. Uh, I guess maybe what I would add to the conversation um, I started thinking about the bad investments in <laughs> in yeah. our world. You know the yes. the way that that um, these people understood their covenant with God to be a, about land and about the preservation of land uh, among their families. There are things that that God has called church communities to, which are kind of their inheritance. You know their their vocation, uh, generation after generation. And some of those things may uh, involve what seem to be intractable social problems, whether it's um, working against poverty, uh, 
climate crisis issues like we were talking about, uh, perhaps um, the struggles of immigrants in, in your community or uh, dealing with racial violence. These things that seem like they very well may get worse before they get better. Mm-hmm. And and yet this is the kind of passage that speaks uh, against giving up, of, against mm-hmm. despair. Um, not that everything's going to be great next week, but that sometimes uh, we're called to continue to invest ourselves, our energy, our time, even our money into things mm-hmm. that from a... Uh, Mm. You know, an outside perspective might seem like bad investments, like yeah, we're just flushing yeah. all that stuff down the toilet. Yeah. But, uh, you know, God gives us uh, a, a calling to invest in these things, even when it's probable that there won't be short term gain from it. Yeah. That yeah. perhaps uh, God is the one who will make the lasting difference, whether we get to see it in our mm-hmm. in our time or not. So I, I thought this passage lends itself to that kind of persistent pursuit of the mm-hmm. callings that God's given us. Yeah, especially since um, so much of our culture is just permeated by economic thinking about cost-benefit analysis. That's right. And um, so that's sort of our default, and it just seems like the common sense. Mm-hmm. And this is, yeah, you were saying this is quite a challenge to that. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a wonderful place to to wrap up. Uh, Carol, it was just a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's always good to have these conversations with two of my favorite people. Oh, Oh. look at that. (laughs) People on the internet can't see me blushing. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, Well, folks, we hope you enjoyed the podcast for today. Um, If you are interested in more of Dr. Newsom's work, head on over to the website, firstreadingpodcast.com. Music during the first reading this week was by Blue Dot Sessions. And we do encourage you, as always, to subscribe to the podcast on our website or on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It also helps if you give us some stars and a review, but most importantly, while you're thinking about it, help us spread the word by telling somebody about first reading. But I think that's all we've got for you. So until next week, I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch. Thanks so much for listening.